I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Alexis McGill-Johnson, the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood. I'm so excited to bring you this episode because I've been a longtime supporter of Planned Parenthood. Alexis and I discuss how Planned Parenthood has broadened their coalition to include organizations and activists from a variety of different movements, making their work truly intersectional and inclusive. We also talk about how Planned Parenthood will continue to move the movement for reproductive health care forward and how they plan to counter the attacks on reproductive rights, including those put into place during the pandemic. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Alexis McGill-Johnson. Alexis McGill-Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So Planned Parenthood has been around for a century, over 100 years, but it feels like it's been under attack, at least from conservatives since, you know, forever, at least that long, right? Yes, um, long. <laughs> yeah, for a really long time. But, you know, under the Trump administration, it feels like there's been a steep trajectory upwards with the attack. They've been really emboldened with, you know, these attempts at abortion bans, complete abortion bans, you know, clinic closures. But I think the thing that I'm most appalled about lately is the use of the pandemic to accelerate the attacks, right? What are some ways that they've exploited the coronavirus outbreak to further restrict access to reproductive care? I mean, can you believe that? Yes, that we are all in the midst of sheltering in place. We are all in the midst of, you know, worrying about our own healthcare and really kind of looking at how the healthcare system Generally, the the disparity within the the healthcare system uh, is being laid bare. And the Trump administration and many folks who have been aligned with the Trump administration in states uh, like Texas and Ohio and Alabama decided to use the pandemic as a cover to push uh, executive orders around access to abortion. And so in several states, uh, you know, Keeping in mind, we're supposed to be staying at home. We are supposed to be, you know, limiting our travel out of um, out of state in order to to flatten the curve. Governors in several states decided that um, now is the time to basically push a political agenda, and they created executive orders limiting access to abortion care, saying that it was in some some cases outright banning it, saying that it was elective, it was non essential. And what we saw was, you know, people leaving state, going from states like Texas to Colorado, Texas to California, driving in many cases dozens of hours to just to get access to medication abortion because they weren't able to access it in their own zip code. So look, since day one, we know the Trump administration has been pushing policies to undermine access to sexual and reproductive health care. But just in the last three months, um, particularly at the height of sheltering in place, uh, you know, many who I think had cover from the, the Trump administration were so focused on using this time to push a political agenda. And it was really just unconscionable. Saying that abortions were non-essential, what actually happened was, and I think, and you can confirm this for me, is that a lot of the clinics had to cancel active appointments. Is, is that true? And, and when that happened, what did people actually do? Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, we had just heartbreaking conversations with providers at our Planned Parenthood health centers across states and, and even some states where abortion hadn't been banned because there just had been a lot of confusion. So providers are getting on the phone. They're calling their patients. They're saying, you know, either you have 
24 hours to get in here or your appointment has actually been canceled and we, we can no longer serve you and we'll have to refer you to a place out of state. We've had patients calling into the health centers and the call centers trying to really just because there was so much confusion that was being sown during the executive orders. As the orders came down, you know, Planned Parenthood along with ACLU and Center for Reproductive Rights, other organizations were fighting each ban in, in each state that was putting them down because we wanted to ensure that both clarity and to ensure that our our patients had access to the care. And so there was just a lot of confusion that was happening. And, you know, abortion is essential healthcare, right? It is time sensitive. And so, you know, so the choices that patients were faced with were, were essentially to travel out of state to secure access. And, you know, I mean, putting themselves more at risk, Right, both for coronavirus or spreading coronavirus throughout the um, through the areas where they were traveling, and then you know also you know there's there's a story of um, a woman that was in one of the briefs uh, who had to put her children in the car with her elderly mom, drive across state lines, I think twelve hours to Colorado and back, and 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 those are like those are the people behind these orders, right? Those are the people who are experiencing you know, on the, on the other end of the political agenda that, you know, it's just so, so um, unbelievable. It is. And, you know, what's interesting is that this isn't much different from what it was before. Like people in certain communities had to travel across state lines to get an abortion. So this just exacerbated those obstacles. Yeah. I mean, we take for granted that, that Roe is still the law of the land and the majority of Americans believe that Roe should be the law of the land, but there are there are states where there are, you know, no abortion providers, um, and there are states where access is so limited because of the multiple restrictions that have been put in place that uh, it makes it uh, extremely difficult, particularly for low-income families, particularly for people of color. Yeah. So can we talk about a few of the restrictions that were put into place before the pandemic? And I think one of the big ones was the Title 10 gag rule, right? And, you know, that bans providers from telling patients about, you know, how they can, you know, safely and legally get access to an abortion. And just a comment, this isn't necessarily a question, but I think that, you know, it should be illegal in all forms of healthcare to withhold information that's useful to a patient for the purposes of manipulating their decision, right? I just think that should be illegal. You'd never do that to a person with a heart condition, right? You right. wouldn't do that, right? right. No, you totally, okay. wouldn't. you totally wouldn't. It's um, right. So, so first of all, like for 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 listeners who don't know the Title Ten program, it is a program that is the the nation's kind of oldest and first family planning grant that you know provides access to to birth control, um, particularly in low income communities rural areas. And when they came out with the, uh, decided to enforce the gag rule in uh, last August, um, the impact of that, the resources, um, particularly for an organization like Planned Parenthood that served 40% of Title X patients, the impact was very tangible, right? It was, it was people who oftentimes don't even know that, that they were getting public assistance for their, for their birth control, all of a sudden had to start paying, you know, in ways that they weren't expecting to or anticipating. And I think it's just a great example, this, this gag rule that was asking providers to not give a full range of options for patients uh, if they found out they were pregnant. It's, it was asking our providers to give substandard care. And that was just completely unacceptable, which is why we were forced out of the program. Uh, so well, I'm just curious. I was thinking about that. And I'm thinking about you know what that looks like practically. You know, Someone comes in to a healthcare provider and they say, you know, I need help. And, you know, following this gag rule, the provider does what and says what? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, 
if you come to a Planned Parenthood, you get the full range of information because we uh, we decided we weren't going to comply with a, a gag rule that asked us to provide substandard care. But it would have looked like, you know, we can't, you know, if you, if you came in and you were pregnant and you asked uh, what your options are for termination, the provider would have to say if they were accepting Title X money, um, I cannot give you information on that or go try Google or, you know... <sighs> You know, I, I mean, it just, it's just like ridiculous, right? And I, and I think like the, the heart of it, Jennifer, honestly, is, is the relationship between a patient and a provider is um, very intimate. It has to be uh, tr- based on trust, right? On getting the right information to take care of your healthcare needs. And if you are a provider and you all of a sudden cannot give the full range of information that someone is asking for and seeking, it is compromising that uh, that level of trust between the patient and the doctor. And so I think it's really important to understand that this isn't just about cutting off access because because people don't want to um, support access to abortion, it is also uh, undermining the basic tenets uh, that should be guiding a, a relationship between a patient and their provider. And I think that's really where you know Planned Parenthood, in particular, you know, stepped in on the side of our, our providers and our patients to make sure that as a trusted messenger, as a trusted resource, particularly around um, sexual and reproductive health care, we would not be compromised. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I hear more people talking about or beginning to talk about is the appointment of these conservative anti-abortion judges. And I like to call them anti-health care yeah. <laughs> just because abortion is health care. Right. And, you know, you know, the important thing about it is that all of the other changes we've talked about, like the changes to Title 10 or, you know, the closing of clinics, um, you know, those can be undone, you know, with majorities in Congress or the Senate or with the White House. But this can't. Right. These are lifetime judges. Yeah. You know, and even Trump himself said that, you know, I think he made a comment about overturning Roe v. Wade would, would happen automatically because he's putting in pro-life judges. Right. Like he he's aware of this. So what does the picture look like now? How many judges have been appointed who have these views? I mean, we are almost looking at almost 200 judges that have been appointed during the Trump administration. It is, I mean, as you say, I mean, when you layer on the number of restrictions that we have seen over just last year, we saw 303 uh, abortion ban restrictions introduced in 47 states and and state legislatures. So like, let's like, let's like pull the picture together and why these judges are so important. You've got 300 restrictions in 47 states. You have almost 200 judges now that have been confirmed, and you know, as a, as an organization, quite frankly, as a, as a movement, we've relied on the courts as our stopgap when when very harmful bans uh, and restrictions to healthcare come about. We are able to to actually use the court to stay to have it be considered. Now we have these 200 judges who have uh, incredibly restrictive thoughts on access to healthcare, abortion healthcare. You know, somebody like Corey Wilson who's about to get confirmed, he actually holds a record that demonstrates incredible hostility towards not just healthcare, but also voting rights, racial justice. You know, I mean, we have Sarah Pitlick, who doesn't even believe in IVF. You know, we have like very conservative judges on access to reproductive health care that will now be adjudicating as to whether or not these bans should be upheld or not. And, and so when you think about the impact, obviously, you know, we oftentimes have the conversation about the Supreme Court, which is also critical and crucial. And we have a case before the court right now. But when you think about the, the pipeline from the, the, the bans through these circuit federal judges 
to the Supreme Court, where there are already, I think, 18 cases now winding their way up, in addition to the one that, that was heard in March, you know, the, the, the world of Roe, the ability for Roe to remain the law of the land is not only subject to potentially being overturned, you know, it could also just be gutted to the point where it's a name only. And that's, that's what I think we really have to like tell the, the big picture of the stories and how strategic those who've been anti- uh, women's health care have been in in trying to push their agenda. Wow. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like 10, 15 years ago, even considering a judge with these kind of archaic views, I mean, they wouldn't have been considered even. Is that fair to say? I, I Absolutely. I think it's fair to say. And I also think, look, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, um, you know, I started uh, working as a volunteer with Planned Parenthood in 2010, right, right at the beginning of the 2010 Congress. And it was in that moment during the redistricting, during the, obviously the census redistricting, uh, the Tea Party that came in into play and the um, this alliance around, um, you know, pushing bans and restri- restrictions, targeted restrictions just for abortion providers really started to escalate. You know, this is the reason why elections matter. This is why, you know, taking the census matters. This is why our uh, really focusing on, on restoring some core tenets around how democracy functions and the checks and balances matter, because we've had now these successive um, elections that have completely transformed our state legislatures, created the opportunity for these, these bans to be put out. And then we're also, you know, having to unwind so much, right? I mean, it, like that is, that that's what, keeps me up at night, quite frankly, just thinking about the massive damage that's already been done and what we will need to do if we get a women's health champion in office <laughs> come November. Right, right. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was just stressed out listening to that. <laughs> it's- no, I know. It's crazy. <sighs> oh, God. Okay. Well, so, but I guess my point was, is that even 10 or 15 years ago, I mean, it's obvious that Democrats wouldn't have considered a judge, some judges with these views, but I think a lot of Republicans would have rejected, you know, such extreme views. You know, Maybe. I mean, look, I think that um, <laughs> I think that what we have now is a small, a vocal minority who has the levers of power. And, um, you know, when you consider the fact that the majority of Americans actually do believe that Roe should be the law of land, when you, be, you know, when you consider the fact that there is no state in the union that believes that abortion should be banned, um, and yet because of these technical changes, right? Because of the makeup, the legislature has changed because of this, the way that the districts were gerrymandered. You actually have people with a minority view who now have more power. Prior to 10, 15 years ago, the electorate was more reflective of communities. And I think that's the fundamental shift and change that we have to look at. And that's what we have to look at, at restoring. And it will take, you know, it will take another decade, right? I think like we're, we're at halftime now at 2020 and we're already, you know, we like have to go back in the locker room and get ready for the next fight after this election, because it's going to take a while to undo a lot of the damage that we've seen through the last decade. Yeah. You know, I think for me, and again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be a missing piece in the way that people, and I'm speaking specifically about people who don't vote consistently for Democrats, (laughs) I guess those would be Republicans, and that, you know, like if they do support access to abortion, 
they, they aren't necessarily making the connection that their their voting decisions at the state level, local level, it's, it's counter to what they actually believe. And that seems to be the missing piece. But yeah, I mean, look, I, th- I think that that traditionally folks who have been the progressives uh, have not actually voted on the courts as consistently. And I think that that is also what's missing. It's the local level, but it's also kind of with a very clear eyed view of what the court makeup should be. And, and that's really where our, you know, our big, our big battles are right now. I mean, look, honestly, if we, if, if Roe gets overturned, there are 25 million women who are living in states right now who would not have access to abortion. That in itself, if you think of, and we're talking about women of reproductive age, who would also overlap with a universe of voters, that's a huge impact that we have to really consider how we awaken and make sure that they understand what's at stake. Right. I was talking to someone recently about the number of changes since Roe v. Wade was was passed. Right. Um, has it been forty years? Um, Actually, forty-seven. Yeah, forty-seven. Like thousands and thousands of restrictions. Right. And it feels like, I mean, maybe I'm not being fair. It feels like it's taken us a really long time to wake up. Yes. You know what? The reason I say forty-seven is because I'm forty-seven years old. I'm as old as Roe. <laughs> I didn't grow up thinking that this was ever going to be a thing, right? I mean, I, you know, of course, there's always, uh, there's always more that we can do to, to, you know, support real meaningful access, right? Because you can have the, have the right, but not actually have the ability to execute on the right. And that's, you know, has a lot to do with our healthcare system and other, other, you know, intersections. But like the fact that that one wouldn't have access uh, if they were seeking abortion just was not something that, you know, I think my generation really was was growing up, you know, worrying about. Um, And, you know, quite frankly, we were taking advantage of all of the fights that had, um, you know, been had before us. And and I think that's why it, it feels like the sky is falling. Like, I want to say the sky is falling. You guys, this is really happening. And there are a lot of people who are, who are you know, are realizing, wow, it, it is actually on the line when they see all of these structural pieces come together. No, you're exactly right. We're in the same boat. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking back, you know, when I was in college or, you know, when these things should have been, you know, really important to me. I, I just took them for granted and thought that they would always be there and things were happening that were really important that should have been paid attention to by myself, you know, back then, you know, and the, and the same is true for Planned Parenthood. I mean, I just a bit of a personal story. My mom was a nurse and I remember, you know, she sometimes she would work in Planned Parenthood clinics. Right. And that was, you know, ages ago. But I remember that it's just, you know, kind of like not really thinking about it. It was something that Planned Parenthood, it had been around forever. It would always be here and you're still here, yep. thankfully. Yep. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I, you're, you're not going anywhere. You've been here for a century. But, you know, just thinking that these attacks would not be effective, right? But one of the things that I have noticed recently about Planned Parenthood, you know, under the Trump administration specifically, and, you know, around the role that you have in the community is how intersectional your work is, right? I mean, because, you know, going back to the story about my growing up, I made the connection of Planned Parenthood to abortion, which a lot of people make that connection, right? But looking at you now, I see just how intersectional it is. I mean, you've been partnering with, you know, the movement for black lives. I saw something about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, you know, activists from the DACA movement and the LGBT community, to just name a few. So I'm assuming that's been strategic. But have partnering with these organizations, has that helped make your coalition stronger going forward, you think? Absolutely. It has been strategic work, but it has been um, very intentional heart work, right? When you actually, Planned Parenthood centers the patient, 
right? We are first and foremost a, uh, a healthcare provider. Our affiliate health centers are providing actual care in communities. And the people for whom they're providing care are living at the intersection of all these issues that we're providing care for, you know, undocumented immigrants, for Black communities, for, for workers, for folks who may not have access, uh, may not even have the ability to pay. And Planned Parenthood health centers provide that care regardless of immigration status, regardless of ability to pay. And, you know, I, I think the, the, the decision to to align with organizations like Movement for Black Lives or to be involved in the DAC fight or, you know, to fight for trans lives, you know, has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, all of these issues are in, in interconnected, right? They're in our, you know, they're in our workplaces, in our schools, in our public institutions, it's in our healthcare system. And we have, I think, a big platform to, to really think through the through line, which is that, you know, we, we fundamentally believe in freedom and we believe that, you know, you should not be criminalized for seeking access to abortion for, you know, determining your own life course. You should not be criminalized for seeking access to freedom through immigration. You should not be criminalized, you know, just as we were talking earlier around just some of the, the, the crazy microaggressions that people are just living while black. And, you know, we won't be able to ever achieve access to justice if people don't have the right to bodily autonomy. And and we definitely won't be able to achieve freedom. And so thinking about how we imagine freedom and fight for freedom, I think that's actually what we're seeing now. And it's been, you know, again, it's been very intentional work. It's been very hard work inside of our organization, inside of, of bringing movements together. But what we're seeing right now is still real, like the grassroots momentum that is taking the country by storm, that is led by young people, that is led by black and brown people, by queer people, really requires not just us as an organization, but us as, as movement leaders to um, to line and make sure that we are fighting and standing on the same page. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's in the midst of all of this, all of these terrible things that are happening, you know, the people in the streets, you know, even though it's it's heartbreaking because you think like, are they risking their health? Mm-hmm. You know, but it is really beautiful to see, right? Um, it is. I feel like very liberatory when I watch it. I have to be honest. <laughs> I think that it is, I keep saying like, when people are like, how are you doing? I'm like, I kind of just have this liberatory vibe right now because I'm seeing these folks who are just so unapologetic about who they are, right? I mean, like that is the, that's at the core of, of freedom, right? It is like, I, I know who I am. I know what freedom looks like. I have a vision around it. And once, once you get that taste, you are not going back, right? You're going to continue to fight for what it means for you to live your life on your own terms. And I I think the intersection of these movements and having these conversations and lifting up is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Alexis, I want to tell you, and and if you don't have this already, you can take this idea. I want a t-shirt that says abortion equals healthcare. Yeah. Right. Because that's, that's missing. I want everyone to understand that, that abortion is healthcare. You know, it, it is abortion. And I don't want to, I just want people to not shrink away from abortion in the way that, you know, sometimes happens in these debates and that, you know, it is healthcare. So if you are not voting for people who are in favor of abortion access for all, you are voting against healthcare. That's, That's just my comment. Hundred percent. I am with you. I take it. I will. I will send you a T-shirt um, <laughs> because it is happening. I mean, look. Just last week, in the middle of the night, you know what happened in Tennessee? These politicians like created a um, uh, one of the craziest bills to ban abortion at nearly every stage of pregnancy 
including before people even know that they're pregnant, right? It's like the most restrictive in the country. It'll be the first abortion ban to be enacted this year. And, you know, you look at something like that and like if people understood it as healthcare, they may have a different a different reaction to it um, rather than letting something like this craziness pass in the, in the, in the dark of night. Right, exactly. And that's why I wanted on a t-shirt, right? Because <laughs> I have these conversations, but they're but they're conversations between people like you and I, right? You know, who kind of understand that we read the books and you know we're leading you're leading an organization, right? But the average person, I think, you know, even on the progressive democratic side, I don't know if everyone can say that they believe that abortion is healthcare. They view it that way. I think they still think of them as two separate things. There's healthcare and then there's abortion, right? And I think it would help everyone if we started talking about them as if they're the same thing. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, look, Planned Parenthood is, again, first and foremost, a healthcare provider. And, you know, we see abortion as um, as part of sexual and reproductive health care. And that's what we provide, everything from STI screenings to cancer screenings to, you know, to birth control to abortion. And and all of those are tools to, as healthcare is, right, tools to help you live, you know, a fully free life. And so I, I am 100% abortion is healthcare. I think it's very simple. I think it is you know, I think it will make a great shirt. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, so, you know, at this point, what, I know this is the thing that keeps you up at night, but you know, how do we begin to turn things around? I know that there's multiple things to do, you know, but what's the most pressing thing or the most pressing three things? Is it, you know, electing people at the local level who are champions for reproductive rights? You know, obviously, obviously it's voting, but the average person, like what should they be doing to help, you know, if they're, if this is a concern of theirs? I mean, it is vote, vote, vote. I think, you know, it is, it is absolutely vote, vote, vote. I think we're heading into an election that is, we've been saying, um, is unprecedented, is the most important election of our lifetimes. And I think that making sure that we are focused on that, educating ourselves about what is happening to access to reproductive health care, specifically abortion, I think is going to be really important. Um, and, you know, I think lifting up champions uh, and, and, and being in it for the long game, right? I think part of the challenge here is that it, it's taken us a while to get to this point where, um, where access to reproductive health care is, is literally on the verge of being lost. And it's going to take us a long time to to restore, right? That this is a fight that will be, uh, you know, has been relentless. It, it has been unyielding. And we have to prepare ourselves for what it will take to not only to restore our democracy, but also to ensure that um, that people people's access to healthcare doesn't depend on their on their zip code. And so, you know, voting is a key piece of that. Having a long game is a key piece of that and staying, you know, focused and strategic and relentless back. And I think making sure we are lifting up our our champions and um, you know, and focused on the on the real momentum. We saw it just in in 20, 2018, 2019 in in state legislature 2018 we got a, a pro-choice congress that was the largest pro-choice majority that we've ever seen because we stayed vigilant from 2016. In 2019, uh, we got governorships in uh, Kentucky and in Virginia. And that state legislature in Virginia, you know, flipped back Democrats and we were able to undo a lot of horrible legislation that was done around access to abortion health care. So, you know, it is a long road. Um, politics, you know, these are these are moments in inside of movements and that elections are critical. 
but we, you know, if you have a movement lens, that means that you were involved for, um, for the long game. And I think it's really important for folks to, to engage. So it sounds like we need two t-shirts. We need, you know, abortion is healthcare and we need, you know, vote for your state legislators. It indeed. Yes. And I, you know, I'm just going to add another one, which is basically movements are never settled. Movements are never settled. We have to stay engaged. We have to stay vigilant. And had had we known, you know, had I known in, in 1973 when I was coming up that this was going to be the fight that I was having 47 years later, uh, I wouldn't have ever said, oh, I thought that was settled, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's really profound. No, that's a really good thing to end on. Wow. Well, Alexis McGill Johnson, thank you so much for all the work you're doing. And I truly appreciate you. And thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. So great to talk to you.